This is Peace Talks Radio, the radio series and podcast on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls. An everlasting topic in the United States is how to heal our country's wounds. Honestly, it's not something we seem to be too good at even trying to do. Whether you're talking about learning our lessons from past pandemics or wars or racism or colonialism or environmental abuse, Americans seem a little more liable to, quote, put that behind us and move forward, unquote. We don't seem that willing to do the hard work of truth-telling, accepting full responsibility for harm we've done, or attending to scars we've left festering. We're not exactly alone in that behavior among the countries of the world over time, but some countries have addressed systemic human rights violations after they've emerged from periods of conflict and repression. While there's no one magic solution, transitional justice, as it's called, is a collection of strategies for creating sustainable approaches and avoiding destructive outcomes when a country has been in extreme conflict, utilizing tools like international criminal courts, truth and justice commissions, or reparations. Today, our co-founder and oftentimes host, Suzanne Kreider, talks with a social justice attorney and member of the National African American Reparations Commission, also a Native American commissioner of a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. But first, Suzanne Zoom calls with Ruben Carranza, a lawyer with the International Center for Transitional Justice. Here's Suzanne. Transitional justice has evolved quite a bit over the years. It began with really an emphasis on legal actions, but it's broadened. So how would you define transitional justice today? This is not my definition, but I'll start with it because it's a definition that most people will look up literally on Google, and then that leads them to the website of the organization I work for, the ICTJ, the International Center for Transitional Justice. And when you look at the ICTJ website on the definition of transitional justice, ICTJ tries to be vague and broad at the same time by saying that it's a set of tools that includes both judicial and non-judicial processes to deal with legacies of massive human rights violation in a country. And then it goes on to say that it includes truth commissions, prosecutions, reparations programs, and various institutional reforms. I thought this would have happened earlier in terms of the International Criminal Court. It's headquartered in The Hague, and it was not established until 1998 by the Rome Statue. What's the Rome Statue and what's the International Criminal Court, also known as the ICC? In 1998, several countries agreed to establish what is now called the International Criminal Court, and it's the first court of its kind, meaning it's a criminal court that has jurisdiction across several countries that are part of the treaty that established the court. And it is a court in the sense that it can go to trial and punish individuals who commit war crimes, crimes against humanity, genocide, and now also the crime of aggression uh, within those countries or among those people that are subject to its what lawyers call jurisdiction. It's also important, I think, to say what the International Criminal Court is is not. It's not a court that can cover every single war crime, every single crime against humanity committed on the planet. Uh, for one reason, many powerful countries are not part of the ICC. 
the United States is not part of the ICC. China is not part of the ICC. Russia, India, they're not part of the ICC. So there are limits to the ICC, but at the same time, it's a first step. Uh, it has its flaws, but I think it is better to have an ICC than not to have an ICC. One strategy of transitional justice is a truth and reconciliation commission. And some people say that a truth and reconciliation commission could build peace if eventually it was used in different places like Israel and Palestine, or maybe Lebanon or Iraq. So what do you believe about using these transitional Sorry. What do you believe about using a Truth and Reconciliation Commission in those kinds of places? Should it be used there? Well, I, I guess there, there's two things to say in response to that question. One is that we talk about truth commissions and not necessarily truth and reconciliation commissions. And there's a reason for that. Uh, reconciliation is not only a very nebulous concept, it's also a very personal concept. We might talk about societies having a reconciliation process, but really at the end of the day, it's individuals deciding if they can reconcile with other individuals. It's groups of people deciding whether they can forgive or whether they want to pursue accountability before they can forgive. These, these are steps that might lead to some form of reconciliation, but organizing it is another matter altogether. And so, in my case at least, I avoid linking reconciliation with truth, linking reconciliation with justice. I think truth stands as its own purpose. Justice might happen after truth, but not necessarily and not always reconciliation. The, the second answer would be that there are places where setting up a truth commission can be helpful but then in many places where truth commissions have been set up, it has not been enough. So while it might be possible to set up a truth commission between Israel and Palestine, uh, that is very unlikely to be enough, given not only the issues involved in the occupation of Israel of Palestine, but also many of the consequences of that occupation that seeking truth alone cannot answer. Uh, at the same time, without truth-seeking and the work of a truth commission, it is very hard to simply go ahead and proceed to prosecution or even to just say, we'll give reparations to victims without even acknowledging through a truth commission what happened in the past. So a truth commission has its value. It can lead to justice, but it will not be enough. Ruben, indigenous oppression. Transitional justice has been used to address indigenous oppression in some places like Australia, um, Canada, New Zealand. And some people in the U.S. have suggested using transitional justice to address racial issues as well as indigenous issues. So do you believe transitional justice should be used in the U.S. to address both indigenous and other racial issues? Definitely. And in fact, there have been examples of transitional justice processes in the United States. They may not be as 
prominent as the South Africa Truth and Reconciliation Commission, but they have been done. One example is a truth commission that was locally established in the city of Greensboro, North Carolina, to examine a specific episode in history, a conflict between the Ku Klux Klan, white supremacists, and left-wing activists that led to killings during a protest. A local truth commission was established in Greensboro. Some of my colleagues in ICTJ, in fact, helped in the establishment of that local truth commission. So it's been done in the United States. What's not been done in the United States is the same kind of national, large-scale, in in a way, more comprehensive approach to truth-seeking that other countries have had. But as you mentioned, Canada has had a truth commission that dealt with uh, indigenous people who were forcibly assimilated into Western schools uh, to make them more Western. And Australia has now opened a truth commission for one state that would also examine the same kind of legacy of oppression committed against indigenous people. So uh, you, you have examples from mostly global North countries dealing with human rights violations committed against indigenous people, but you also do have examples of a truth commission, for example, uh, in the United States, as well as even reparations programs, uh, again, in the United States, uh, that are examples of transitional justice being applied. Uh, For example, uh, of a reparations program in the United States that constitutes transitional justice, you have reparations that were given to Japanese Americans who were interned during World War II, put into concentration camps uh, because they were seen as threats because of their Japanese ancestry. Reparations were given to them, and that's an example of transitional justice in the United States. Today on Peace Talks Radio, we're talking with Ruben Carranza, a lawyer with the International Center on Transitional Justice. He works with victims, communities, and reparations policymakers in many countries around the world. There's a wave of democratization. It's kind of like a wave in the ocean. It goes up, there's more democracies. It goes down, there's fewer democracies with less depth. It just keeps changing. So what's your view of democracy, in particular if it builds peace, and also, what do you think about the future could happen? That's 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 a that's a very good insight. That, that, that you know, there, this ebb and flow of democracies emerging or again uh, reversing itself. We saw the Arab Spring just a few years ago, and you can see from from that example of the Arab Spring that it's not enough to emerge from dictatorship. It's not enough to have elections to be regarded as democratic. It's important to address the grievances that led to those revolutions. And some of those grievances are economic and social grievances, grievances involving corruption, grievances involving inequality. And those are the kinds of grievances that elections do not cure. Those are the kinds of grievances that having new government officials do not necessarily get rid of. And of course, those are the kinds of grievances that should have been considered in forming economic and social policy in the North African and Middle East countries that um, went through the Arab Spring. But you also, I think, 
correctly pointed out that democracies can reverse themselves even after you think you've emerged from dictatorship or that you have solid institutions. The United States is, of course, a good example of how a populist elected person can become an authoritarian leader and simply reverse decades of democracy. Uh, but it's not alone. You have Brazil, you have the Philippines, you have Hungary, Poland, so many countries that have been led by elected leaders who then become authoritarian leaders. And so one of the key things to, to, to take away from that is that elections are not necessarily the best yardstick for what the democracy is. Change for the better, change that is progressive, change that addresses the economic and social grievances of people who vote is just as important. Some people would say, yeah, but we're human. Look at history. We're never going to get rid of all the grievances. We're never going to have justice. What would you say to that? Um, I, I can see the cynicism and, and pessimism <laughs> behind that because people don't, don't live long enough to see how much change has happened. And that's why it's important to, to look at history because we cannot live in the same decades where People were slaves, for example. Uh, we can read about it. We can learn about it. And that's, in many ways, what transitional justice tries to do. Revisit the past so that we learn from it. The, the never again idea. And, and, and I think it's important to recognize that cynicism as well. Because it's not enough to change. It's not enough to have one transition. In, in many cases, transitional justice even has to happen again. Because... It can't completely prevent the kinds of grievances, the kinds of authoritarian rulers, or the kinds of conflict uh, that happen sometimes in cycles. So what, what I would say is that we, we can't simply say history should not repeat itself. We can't simply say it should never, again, never happen again. We cannot simply, for example, keep talking about the Holocaust as the only genocide that's ever been committed because there have been more genocides than the Holocaust. I think it's important to examine the root causes of what leads to genocide. It's important to examine what leads to armed conflict, what leads to people voting an authoritarian person who's racist, who's misogynist into power and learn from it and try to find ways to prevent it. Are we truly building peace with transitional justice? Because some people say it's too victim-centric or it's really just making dominators out of the dominated. The difficulty in measuring the impact of transitional justice is that part of the impact is often only found when the next round of violence, the next attempts at authoritarianism, or the next episodes of social upheaval happen, we find out what the impact was of transitional justice when in those next rounds of violence, of war, or attempts at dictatorship, or social upheaval, whether persons in fact go to war, whether persons in fact end up under a dictatorship, whether persons in fact end up killing each other over social disagreements. Because if they don't, or if the scale of violence isn't of such a magnitude 
that it becomes genocide, that it becomes a fratricidal war, or that it becomes a years-long dictatorship, in many ways, one can argue transitional justice has had an impact. Transitional justice has succeeded not to prevent war, not to prevent attempts at dictatorship, not to prevent social upheaval, but to prevent a scale of killing, a scale of repression, a scale of violent disagreement that approaches what happened in the past. So peace isn't the complete absence of conflict. I think peace is in large parts being able to fulfill basic needs, whether they're economic or social, or whether they're about expressing one's political views or civil rights, without punishment, without conflict, without violent disagreement. And, and in many ways, peace isn't going to be all the kinds of love and harmony that might be how others see them. I think, I think peace mm. is, is being able to coexist at the very least or be reconciled at most. Ruben Carranza is a lawyer with the International Center for Transitional Justice who works with victims, communities, and reparations policymakers in many countries around the world. You can hear more from him in Suzanne's full conversation with him at our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. More on transitional justice today on Peace Talks Radio after a short break. This is Peace Talks Radio, the radio series and podcast on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. Online with all of our shows at peacetalksradio.com and at Apple Podcasts. I'm Paul Ingalls, today with Suzanne Kreider, who continues her survey of thinking about transitional justice techniques that countries have tried to address past or recent systemic human rights violations after emerging from periods of intense conflict and repression. Next, Suzanne connects with Sandy Whitehawk for another take on transitional justice, our topic for today. Sandy's been a commissioner for the Maine Wabanaki State Child Welfare Truth and Reconciliation Commission. My name is Sandy Whitehawk, and I am from the, uh, I am Sichangu Lakota from the Rosebud Reservation in South Dakota. You've been involved in several different truth and reconciliation processes how do you define a truth and reconciliation process? When we began having gatherings of our relatives who had been impacted by child welfare, we started this in 2006, I believe was the first one. 
My intent was that those who've been impacted by foster care and adoption uh, have the opportunity to share with those who make decisions about foster care and adoption. So that would be social workers, guardian ad litems, uh, judges, lawyers, mental health workers, anyone who touches a case. I wanted them to hear what the outcomes of these decisions were because at this time, it's not just me who knew, most of Indian country knew that our children being placed outside our families and communities were not faring well for the most part. I wanted workers to hear that these decisions that they were making in the best interest of the child were not indeed best interests of the child. And that my hope was that they would, based on our um, lived experience, focus on family preservation. It's so difficult to share a painful story for people to do this in public. And it mm -hmm. seems like many truth and reconciliation commissions are set up that way where a person talks to the group in public, but are there other options where a person doesn't have to speak in public? Well, the, the fear of speaking in public, I don't know where that comes from because as Indian people, we've always been able, like our ancestors were well-spoken and not ashamed prior to colonization. Being afraid to say what happened to you is a result of colonization. Being afraid to speak your truth and not understanding and hearing that, knowing and being assured that speaking your truth is your power and that that, that releases shame, that is all a result of colonization. So I have witnessed hundreds of individuals share their lived experience publicly and they find release. They find they're finally their experience is validated. These things, these atrocities that happened in boarding school and in a, abusive adoptive homes and abusive foster homes happened in isolation. And we're probably given the message, if not directly, indirectly, you say nothing. And so to repeat, and individuals that are, that are sharing their lived experience don't share intimate details, but they share the brutality that happened to them, how it made them feel, and how it impacted them today. So the one of the things that has not been addressed in our communities or as a result of boarding school and adoption is this disenfranchised grief, which is a grief that's not been publicly acknowledged or validated. And so when that happens, it begins to heal that grief. It's the start of taking back your power. This happened to me. The relatives hear it and they embrace that individual, they support that individual and the healing begins shame is shattered when you say your truth and the truth is validated. It's, there's nothing to be ashamed of. We didn't do this. We didn't cause this. That shame doesn't belong to us. It belongs to those who perpetrated that onto us. Because anytime you have a wound, a huge wound, 
you know, on a small scale, you fall and, and scrape yourself up. You go to your mom, your mom brushes it off and um, puts a Band-Aid on it maybe and tells you, you'll be all right now because maybe it wasn't that. Or if you broke a bone, she takes you to the doctor. And even though your bone is broke, she'll tell you, you'll be okay. Because the reason that we're going to be okay is we have someone taking care of us. Hmm. So these children, you know, when they were raped, when they were beaten, when they were so humiliated by whatever horrid punishment that they were given, no one comforted them. No one told them that it'd be okay. They were given the opposite message. Number one, you deserve this because you're Indian. You deserve this because you, you speak, you know, you're speaking your language. Um, and so there's years of keeping that inside of you, learning to survive without having someone give you a hug and say, you'll be okay. We're here. Cindy, you were a commissioner for the Maine Wabanaki State Child Welfare Truth and Reconciliation Commission. So two things, what was unique about that and how did it build peace? It was unique because it's the first mandated uh, child welfare uh, truth commission between tribes and, and the state that the tribes are in. So that, that, made, that was unique. Um, the circles I had been doing were all basically grassroots circles, even though there were professionals involved in hearing. Here, um, there was more structure to focus in the long run goals that uh, the tribes uh, wanted. So it was, um, it was a beautiful uh, time of truth, truth gathering and meeting, getting to know the uh, main tribes. So the organization that structured the commission called REACH um, is still working today to enhance the relationships that were built during the truth commission. Tell us about the organization that you created First Nations Repatriation Institute and the Truth Circles. So the First Nations Repatriation Institute. The reason I chose repatriation is because of the definition of repatriation. People have only been used to it in regard to our artifacts, sacred items that are being repatriated to um, our tribes. I use the term because of the definition, the part of the definition that describes someone returning to their homeland, returning to their homeland, especially after war. And that's what I want all adoptees to be able to do is put their feet on their homeland and restore their citizenship, which means we could you know, possibly become enrolled. And that's just straight out of the Webster's Dictionary. <laughs> that uh, I thought of using repatriation. And when I read that, I went, yeah, that's us. That's adoptees and fostered individuals who grew up away from our, our uh, families and communities. Today on Peace Talks Radio, we're talking about truth and reconciliation processes as one possible strategy of transitional 
justice. We're talking with Sandy Whitehawk, a Sinchanku Lakota adoptee from the Rosebud Reservation in South Dakota. She was a commissioner for the Maine Wabanaki State Child Welfare Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Sandy, what is the Indian Child Welfare Act and how does it promote peace? The Indian Child Welfare Act was passed in 1978 as a response to the systematic removal of Indian children from Indian families. It set a, um, a criteria a criteria of how a child should be removed from their home because so many um, decisions were being made. Um, unfit mother, no electricity, no um, running water, poverty. Mothers who were pregnant were coerced to sign their babies over even before they gave birth. It was just a horrible time of being targeted. So in, uh, in 78, that uh, under the leadership of Senator Aberesk, who was, and Bert Hirsch, they are the co-authors of the Indian Child Welfare Act, um, had got that passed. However, we are still seeing high rates of removal of Indian children. In fact, Minnesota has the distinction of being, um, having the highest rate of removal in the nation. What if some of our listeners want to do something to help the process of a Truth and Reconciliation Commission in the U.S. for First Nations people? Is there anything they can do? You would call your state representatives, your tribal leaders, your people you have relationships with within the county and state that you're in, because there are always allies. There are won't be more, there won't be as many as we want them to be, but they are there. And begin thinking, how do you want to go across this? You can go to the main trc.org website and look it up there. You could contact them in Maine and say, hey, we want to do this. What do you suggest? We're doing some groundwork here in Minnesota. I, you could contact me as well uh, if you wanted to, but um, you can reach out. You can go to the Canadian if you just put um, Canadian TRC, I think you can get it that way too. I, mean, I don't have their website memorized, but it, it's easy to find even if you don't know the website and you can go on there and look and see uh, what they did and the result of what they did. Truth and reconciliation commissions are about two things. They're about truth, so being heard. They're also about reconciliation and change. Mm, yeah. Which part is more important for building peace? I don't know if you can have one without the other. And the other piece is not everyone is comfortable with the word reconciliation. And so to me, truth is a time of sharing the truth, what happened to me. And then healing has to take place. A lot of people are just not liking that word reconciliation. People will say, well, we've never been conciled. <laughs> How can we reconcile? <laughs> um, and this is true. But to me, reconciliation means establishing new relationships that based on what the truth was and moving forward. But it doesn't matter what you call it. If you want to call it truth, healing, change, truth, healing, justice, 
whatever whatever word helps you focus on where you want to go is what should be done. It does not have to be the word reconciliation. It just doesn't have to, because it, it's entirely up to the community. Cindy, you wrote a poem titled, You Can Rest Now, Grandma. Read the poem for us. So it's titled, Grandparents of Those Removed Children. I was told by an elder that when you take a child from its mother, you're really taking him from the grandparents. So often they are denied the right to raise their own grandchildren when parental rights are terminated, told they are too old or too poor. Grandparents are our foundation. Their hearts grieve when we are gone. They live in fear and sadness that their future is lost. The pain in their hearts, forgotten by those around them, they are left to pray alone at night, cry alone at night. They blame themselves for all the family pain, not understanding that they are our true warriors, surviving boarding schools, mission schools, and relocation. They survived it all, gave us life, raised us in pain and confusion, gave us life. You can rest now, Grandma, I am home. Your prayers were strong, Grandma. They guided me home. Your blood I feel. Your blood runs strong. It led me home. I've heard the drum. I've sung our songs. Your tears have cleansed me in the sweat. Now I'm strong. No more hate. No more pain. It's never too late to learn our ways to heal our heart, to walk in pride, to walk in dignity, to walk in beauty. I've danced in the circle. I have smoked the pipe. I've danced and touched the tree. Now my heart can see your face, Grandma, your face in mine. I am home. You can rest now, Grandma. I am home. Sandy Whitehawk, thank you. You're welcome. You can hear more about Sandy Whitehawk's truth and reconciliation work in Suzanne Kreider's complete conversation with her at our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. We take another short break and get more ideas on transitional justice. The topic of reparations comes up with our next guest. That's just ahead. You're tuned to Peace Talks Radio. Since 2002, we're the radio series and podcast on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer and co-founder Paul Ingalls, today with our interviewer and other co-founder Suzanne Kreider. 
Transitional justice is the topic today. As the U.S. seems to be perpetually dealing with the consequences of unattended social, political, and economic wounds, Suzanne is today sampling transitional justice strategies for creating sustainable approaches and avoiding destructive outcomes when a country has found itself to be in extreme conflict or deeply polarized. Suzanne's last guest in the transitional justice field today is Nakichi Taifa, a social justice attorney and member of the National African American Reparations Commission. I think many people are confused about reparations as I was, because I used to think reparations was only about money, but it's not. It's a lot more than money. So what else would reparations for African Americans in the U.S. include? Well, first of all, a lot of people think it's just about a check. (laughs) It is not. Now, that's not to say a check would not be uh, a legitimate form of a reparation settlement, but it's far, far, far more. And today, it really is crystal clear that a reparation settlement can be fashioned in as many ways as necessary to equitably address the countless manifestations of injury sustained from chattel slavery and beyond. So some forms of redress could include land, it could include economic development or scholarships, or it could embrace community um, development. You could have repatriation resources. I mean, if some folks want to go back to Africa, it can be truthful textbooks, okay? You know, it might be the erection of monuments and museums. Uh, It even could be, okay, I know this is in the news today, but pardons for uh, prisoners from the war on drugs and from the COINTELPRO um, era. You know, all of these, let me tell you, the harm was multifaceted. Thus, the remedy must be multifaceted as well. There are some people of color in the African-American community who make a lot of money, they're wealthy, and they say, no, don't have reparations financially because it will be belittling. What's your reaction? Well, my my response to that is, just like in the legal system, if Oprah went out there and got hit by a car, uh, she's entitled to damages. Now, whether she decides she wants to accept those damages or, or, or donate it or use it for any other purposes, that's her and anyone else in that position's um, prerogative. But the fact that it is old, in my humble opinion, should not rest upon uh, uh, the economic status of the, of the injured uh, party. It is old. That doesn't mean that the person has to accept it. They can do with it whatever they uh, uh, feel motivated. Nakich Schaefer, you're a member of NARC, the National African American Reparations Commission. What is that? Okay, well, NARC, the National African American Reparations Commission, is a, a body that was established in 2015, bringing together um, experts and professionals in various areas, such as law, you know, medicine, psychology, um, you know, psychology, uh, academics, and, and the like, to, as a united voice, look at some of these uh, issues and uh, really try to confront them. I've been a, a, an inaugural member of NARC since its founding in 2015, and it is patterned off of the CARICOM, the Caribbean Nations uh, uh, Reparations uh, Organization that basically has a 10-step program. Tell us a few of the 10 steps. Yeah, so uh, some of the 10 steps of the NARC 
uh, uh, preliminary reparations program includes, number one, first and foremost, an apology, an apology from the United States government and the establishment of what we call a ma'afa, uh, which is an African Holocaust uh, Institute. We also talk about the right to land for social and economic development. We talk about resources for health and wellness and healing. Healing is so very critical. We talk about education for community development and the preservation of Black sacred sites and, and monuments, affordable uh, you know, housing, repairing the damages of the criminal injustice system. Those are just some of the points that are part of NARC's 10-point reparations program. H.R. 40, also known as House Resolution 40, what is it and how would it build peace? Uh, yeah, well, H.R. 40 is the bill that was first established by Congressman John Conyers back in 1989 to establish a commission to study, and now it's been expanded to actually develop reparation proposals for uh, African Americans. It is modeled after the successful Japanese American reparations bill uh, that passed in 1988, and it has been languishing in Congress for uh, over 30 years. We hope that that will come to fruition very soon. And that will go a long way towards uh, reconciliation and peace. Today on Peace Talks Radio, we're talking about reparations as a form of transitional justice with Nakichi Taifa. Nakichi is a social justice lawyer and a member of the National African American Reparations Commission. Nakichi, what is transgenerational epigenetic trauma? So I just heard this term, transgenerational epigenetic uh, trauma, from one of our NARC commissioners who since passed, Nana uh, Pat Newton, who is a psychiatrist. And she talked about this concept wherein the trauma travels within our genes. And she said that the concept was based on actual studies that were done of um, Holocaust survivors, their descendants, their grandchildren, their great-grandchildren, and they were experiencing, you know, some type of issues. And it was scientifically shown that that memory was embedded within their gene, that memory from their ancestors. So then we looked at that situation as it relates to Black people in this country. And the centuries-long memory and pain and trauma throughout the, 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 the centuries. And, you know, that concept applies to Black people in this country as well. So we're hoping that a reparation settlement would seek to um, involve some type of remedy towards alleviating uh, these types of conditions. It seems like white people don't really get this whole idea of healing. I think a lot of white people say, well, we're not responsible. We didn't do it. We didn't have slaves. So why do we have to be involved in reparations? I don't think they get this whole idea that it travels in genes. It has to do with the legal system, social. So many things are going on in the U.S. So what would you say? Yeah, well, I'll just say, you know, there's just so much that we don't even know about, that we don't even remember. So many things that are just now coming uh, to light. So many of the massacres of entire Black communities, whether it was Rosewood, Florida, or or uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma, or Elaine, uh, Arkansas, or Wilmington, North Carolina. I mean, many times you have to go to Google to find out what was going on, but this was not in the not-too-distant past. We're talking about situations that was... Uh, occurring when my mother was a 
baby. We talk about uh, merciless experimentations on defenseless black women devoid of anesthesia, which led to modern gynecology. We're talking about the enormous profits from the enslavement era made by corporations and insurance companies and the banking and investment industries and the academic and religious uh, institutions. So it's not just the federal, state, and local governments. It's like the whole spectrum of American uh, society. And all of that trauma, all of that has been up within us, whether we recognize it, uh, um, uh, you know, specifically or not, it is there. And I learned about Katrina Brown, who is a person who's white, and she created this movie called Traces of the Trade. Talk about that. Yeah, yes. My white colleague, Katrina Brown, she uncovered evidence that her ancestors were the largest slave trading family in U.S. history. She found that they brought over 10,000 Africans to the Americans, brought them here in chains. And she documented her roots in a phenomenal film called Traces of the Trade, a story from the deep north, not the deep south, from the deep north. And I think that some of the things that she brought out, you know, really kind of impacted me. She said that everybody in the town, everybody benefited from slavery, whether it was the boat maker, the iron worker, or the, uh, the, the, who manufactured the shackles, or the coopers who made the barrels to hold the rum, or the distillers who took the molasses and the sugar made into it. She basically said, literally, the whole town was dependent upon the slave trade. And she, st she states emphatically that wealth and privilege in the United States has been amassed in large members as a direct or indirect consequence of the institution of slavery. This is a Nikichi Taifa saying this. This is my white colleague, Katrina Brown. Let's talk about genocide. And again, people often think genocide is just about killing people, but it's not. I'm curious with these two questions that you explain how African-Americans suffered genocide and how you as a lawyer think about genocide. Can it be used to build peace? This legal idea of genocide, can it be used to create peace? Sasui Sam, when I first <laughs> actually read the actual internationally accepted definition of genocide, it blew me over. See, I thought genocide was just killing off all the native peoples or, you know, burning the, the Jews in the, in the ovens. Oh, but, oh my goodness. When I found out the international definition, killing members of the group, causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group, deliberately inflicting upon the group conditions of life, calculated to bring about the destruction in whole or in part, taking measures to uh, prevent births within the group. And I think the last one had something to do with uh, transporting, uh, transferring children from one group to the other. But the definition went on to say that genocide was not the only actionable offense. Uh, oh, gosh. Attempt to commit genocide, directing public incitement to commit genocide, complicity to commit genocide. And there was one other provision, you know, as well. But it also went on to say that those guilty of genocide shall be punished, regardless of whether they are constitutionally protected rulers, public officials, or private citizens. And so I, you know, that boiled me over because I said, okay, conditions of life, 
Look at the conditions of life in black communities. Look at the health deficit that we have suffered as a result of the enslavement era. Let's look at the educational uh, inequities. Let's look at the black right wealth gap. All of these are conditions of life calculated to bring about the destruction in whole or in part of a national, racial, ethnic, or religious group. And that was the definition, but it went on. The United States codified the Genocide Convention, the International Convention in U.S. law. And the Genocide Convention upon Information and Belief is the only international treaty where there is not a need for implementing legislation. It comes with it, with implementing legislation. And why lawyers have not really forthrightly used that International Convention in U.S. law um, is beneath me because I think it's a perfect uh, analogy and puts Black people in this country just on a square footing with people all over the world. That's what I don't understand. How come it the law of genocide, the international law, has not been used in the U.S.? Look, it took only, it took nearly 40 years for it finally to be codified by the Senate. And one of the reasons why it took that long was the fear from um, really Southern senators that Black people would use the uh, convention to its um, uh, to its benefit. And since that time, um, prior to the passage, there was the Civil Rights Act and there was the Voting Rights Act and other acts, et cetera, et cetera. So then it finally passed. But why have not lawyers taken it upon themselves? I think it's a lack of information. I don't think a whole lot of people, even lawyers, even know about this. I didn't learn about this in law school. It was going on during the time I was in law school being debated. But because of my activism and my advocacy outside of the mainstream, outside of law school, that I came upon information like this. No, I didn't learn this in class. I didn't learn hardly anything about international law in class or in school and definitely not coming up during the, uh, you, you know, in the, in the lower, uh, you know, educational in institutions. So I think it's just pertinent that these, um, uh, that these international instruments be very well entrenched within the minds of legal scholars so that we can, uh, in fact, um, start thinking out of the box and start incorporating some of these into um, our legal um, issues here. And Nikiji, in your opinion, do you think that should be used by lawyers to help get reparations for African-Americans in the U.S.? Well, absolutely. If, if one is going through the legal route, I think that that definitely should be a legal prom that should be used. Most of the repertory justice initiatives, at least currently, have been through the uh, legislative route or through the public policy route. There is a litigation going on right now in Tulsa, Oklahoma, um, as a result of the 19, I think it was 23, it might have been 1921, I'm sorry, uh, race massacre where a bomb was actually dropped on predominantly black, whole uh, prominent community, wiping out just about everything. All that was gotten as a result of that was uh, some pittance um, scholarships. So there, there are lawyers now really going in and um, um, uh, and through the legal route. I'm not sure what legal theories they're using. I'm not part of that uh, team, but I would say that international law, specifically the Genocide Convention, should be one that should be part of their um, arsenal of legal weapons. Nikich Deva, your book, Black Power, Black Lawyer, 
my audacious quest for justice. Tell us about your life and also talks a little bit about your advocacy work, particularly um, helping jail Black Panthers. You know, some people would hear that and our listeners, some might get really scared. Others might be confused. Some might be impressed. What are some beliefs that we have about the Black Panthers, many white people, that could be askew? Well, many of those beliefs were manufactured by tentacles of the United States government, specifically the Federal Bureau of Investigation, as part of its uh, illegal counterintelligence program, codenamed COINTELPRO, uh, whose goals were to disrupt and destroy the Black movement. And so while the Black Panthers in particular were engaging in free breakfast programs for children, engaging in free health screenings and the like. In fact, their free breakfast programs were later adopted by governments um, in, term, in terms of what we now know as the breakfast in the schools program. But instead of focusing on those positive pe- people's programs, they focused on the self-defense that the Panthers were u- utilizing in terms of defending their themselves and their, their communities and neighborhoods, primarily against racist uh, police. So there, there are Black Panthers, people who were former members of the Black Panther Party, who are still languishing in prison today after 40, almost 50 years, okay? And um, they should be free. The the, the, the last prong of the Japanese American Redress Bill, which was um, passed by Congress and signed into law, was a pardon for all of those who resisted detention camp internment. I submit that a part of a, a, a reparations claim for Black people in this country should likewise be a pardon for all of those who were swept up under that illegal COINTELPRO counterintelligence error. It seems like you're really positive about the possibility of reparations happening in the U.S. How come? Well, the issue of reparations has now reached the mainstream. I mean, when I started talking about this issue, I was like a teenager. And, and we're going to say I'm, I'm well up in the age in age now. So we're talking about <laughs> a struggle that for me has been going on a very, very, very long time. But I am optimistic now. The bill, H.R. 40, has more co-sponsors than it has ever had. There's a Senate companion bill that has been uh, introduced. I don't know if I will be as optimistic as to say that reparations will happen very soon, but I do know that the issue has been thrust from the fringe, from the back corners, from out of the casket into the mainstream. And regardless of what anyone's specific position is or is not about it, it is definitely dinner table top conversation today. And that is a long way from where it was back when I first started talking about the issue. Nikichi, tell us about the international work regarding reparations. All over the world, people who are part of the African diaspora have been lifting up the issue of reparations, whether it's from the Caribbean, whether it's from South America, whether it's from Europe, all over the world where there are African descendants, people are lifting up uh, this issue and pointing out the various contradictions that are uh, there and demanding recompense from the former colonizers or from, in the instance of this country, from government and um, uh, corporations and educational institutions, academic institutions, you know, and the like. So reparations is an international issue. It is an issue 
whose time has come. And in these volatile times that we find ourselves in, I think that a true coming to the table of all parties and forthrightly and honestly uh, looking for just how can we together make amends for the sins from the past. And um, I'm optimistic that we're getting to get towards that point. I would like to say one more thing, if that's okay. Yes. So I just wanted to just say something else about my memoir, Black Power, Black Lawyer. It's not just a memoir. It's, it's, it's part memoir, but it's also part textbook. It's part study guide and it's part expose. And I say part textbook because I tell about a lot of these things in, in my book. I tell about it from a personal point of view, from someone who actually went through a lot of these issues during the time I was going through them when I'm 16 years old, opening up the, uh, the, 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 the paper, the Black Panther paper, and seeing that point number three that actually talked about uh, reparations. My book, it stitches together suspense and calamity and humor and wit into a tapestry that includes history and politics and law, culture, and yep, sometimes even a romance. But basically, in, uh, uh, in, in essence, I, in my book, offer my truth and I offer it unapologetically and unfiltered with honesty and authenticity. And I really want my quest, my quest, my life's quest for justice as a Black power advocate and as a Black movement lawyer and as a reparations activist, I want all of it to awaken, to inform, to provoke, to move, and at best to fire up folk to be part of this whole struggle. I'm thinking about that Frederick Douglass quote, if there is no struggle, there is, there no, is progress. no progress. Those who profess to favor freedom and yet depreciate agitation are those who want the crops without plowing up the ground. They want the, 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 the lightning, they want the rain without the thunder and the lightning, and they want the, the ocean without its mighty boards or something like that. I'm sorry. I, I just get very passionate about that speech because Frederick Douglass talked about power conceding nothing without a demand. And that's what we must do. That's what we're trying to do with respect to our claim for reparations, uh, speaking out to power. There's more with Nakichi Taifa in the complete conversation she had with host Suzanne Kreider at our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's where to go to hear any of our programs again. See photos, read more, find links to more on the topic, all at peacetalksradio.com. That's also where you can go to find a donate button, allowing you to help us keep producing our show, as many of you have since we started in 2002. Thanks so much. Help also comes from the Albuquerque Community Foundation Ties Fund. Thanks always to KUNM at the University of New Mexico for early support for our series. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Apple Podcasts. Nola Daves Moses is our executive director. For Suzanne Kreider, I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio.